In the 14 years of The Candid Frame, we have featured many conversations with photographers who have worked for National Geographic magazine. Each conversation has provided wonderful insights into what's involved in producing images for a magazine that has set the bar for visual storytelling. But the photographs in Nat Geo exist not because a photographer just traveled to some exotic location. The work is a collaboration of a team of researchers, writers, and photo editors. Sarah Lean, in her career with the magazine, has worked as both the photographer and the photo editor. She brings a wealth of experiences and wisdom about understanding the language of photography. I have, you know, looking at people's work, and there, there's some photograph, and it's a beautiful image, but they're piling on so much on that picture. So this is about climate change, and it's showing that it's about this, and it's about that, and actually it's not. You know, the, the text will be, or the caption will be, but the picture, it's actually more simplistic in terms of what it can do and what it's actually saying. And having people understand that difference, I think, is really important. Like, what's the emotion? Because photography speaks so emotionally. It's all about your it's emotions, especially if you don't have any text with them. And you're just, like, I, when I like, look at people's work, I don't want to really know anything about it at first. I want to see what does it say to me, you know, just visually. We'll talk to Sarah about the life she's led, both as a photographer and an editor, and how she pulled off her first assignment for National Geographic. This is Ibadi and X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, welcome to the show. It's really a pleasure to, ha to have you and uh, to have a you. chance to talk with you because you have uh, such a, a wonderful experience uh, as a photographer, as an editor, and uh, I like having a conversation with people who have worn multiple hats during their career, because I think that's an, an incredible wealth of knowledge and wisdom to be had. So thank you for, for making the time for us. That's great. Um, my pleasure. I think, uh, yeah, I've been really fortunate. I've had a really great ride. So one of the questions that, that's often posed to photographers is like, when do you fall in love with photography in terms of, uh, you know, is there a particular photograph? But so much of your career has been about uh, telling stories with photograph in your role, mm -hmm. both as a photojournalist mm -hmm. and as an editor. And mm -hmm. my question to you is, do you remember a photo story, a, a photo essay that really made an impression on you early on? Um, when I was in journalism school at the University of Missouri, we were fed a pretty healthy diet of the early life magazine photographers' story stories. Um, so I was very much struck by, you know, the W. Jean Smith, uh, Bill Epridge, and, you know, Mary Ellen Mark, for sure. I would say when I was in school, seeing Mary Ellen Mark's work from India and her circuses and her... Um, the uh, pr uh, prostitution district in mm -hmm. India, uh, in Calcutta, and uh, that made a huge impression on me, Mary Ellen's work, and also early Annie Leibovitz's work. Both were. One, of course, there were women, which kind of said to me, okay, you can do this, um, and here's some opportunities. And I just also 
You know, I love Mary Ellen's storytelling and how she committed for like really huge amounts of time over years and years and years. Uh, and she used every travel opportunity to keep building on her stories, which I thought was really smart. But I thought when I saw that work that there was a path to a life mm-hmm. that could get you almost anywhere, you know, yeah. through any door, which was a huge appeal for me as well. Yeah, I mean, those those people are just were amazing examples, not only as photographers who could create singular, stunning imagery, but who could put together a series of images that would really have impact beyond what a solo photograph could ever do. And uh, yesterday I went to a, a friend who was exhibiting some work. He was a photo, he, he was a, just a recently retired photojournalist, Walt Mancini from the Pasadena Star News. And he, and along with two other photographers, shared their work. And I think one of them went back to the early 60s. So there were several mm-hmm. generations of photojournalists who had documented our town here. And one of the, one of the displays was uh, just some tear sheets of the paper where they would have the, the photo essay of you know, a fire that had happened there. And I realized that mm-hmm. I, so, I don't see that as often. That used to be such a, a, a linchpin of, of my own learning as a photographer was being able to look at you know, several pages and how do you bring together these photographs, not just so that they complement each other visually, but they're telling a story, they're telling a narrative. And what were some of the things that were really key for you as you were coming up as a photographer that you needed to understand so that you could be serve effectively as a as the photographer creating these images, but also later a collaborator with an editor to make those selections? Well, I would say just back to the uh, school, the University of Missouri mm-hmm. Journalism School, there was definitely a, uh, an emphasis on storytelling. And then a couple of my early newspaper jobs in the at the Topeka Capital Journal with Rich Clarkson, at the small paper in Columbia, Missouri, and on to the Philadelphia Inquirer. There was always, I felt like, an emphasis on creating more than that single image while you definitely are doing that as a newspaper photographer you know it was sort of like you got extra points when you did a whole story or Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just something that it appealed to me I I loved getting a chance to immerse myself in people's lives and really stay and hang around and go back and when I was in school I did a story about um, I think my first photo story was about two older women that lived together. It was Aunt Bess and Eileen. And Aunt Bess was probably in her early 80s. And I uh, had had an assignment from the school newspaper to go photograph her because she was making quilts and taking them down to Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And so I just did a portrait of her. And while I was doing a portrait of her in her bedroom with all these quilts laid out and hanging everywhere, there was this other woman there kind of hanging around the doorway who had like a speech impediment and her and she that was Eileen. And she was younger than Aunt Bess by, oh, maybe 20 years. So she was, or, you know, she's probably in her late 60s, early 70s. And their relationship was I could tell there was something really special with their relationship. And so I went back 
and I started going back and I would go on the weekends. I would go in the evenings and we never left the house. The whole story takes place in about four rooms and it was just magic. I, and I just, I love them. I still remember them so fondly. And they, I could walk in and out of their house whenever I wanted to. I stay for lunch. I could just hang out with them. And I just felt something, so, there was something so special about being allowed into people's lives like that. And mm. it was all about, because I was a photographer and because I was going to tell their story or, and I just was hooked (laughs) about that. (laughs) And I thought, what a privilege this was. And it was going to be able to take me to the highest levels of, of, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, presidents to, you know, the, to people who were living on the street. I mean, you could span the entire sort of rainbow of our society and other societies as a photojournalist. And that, privilege was it was just magical for me and I and I just completely was hooked on it yeah and I think also is what's interesting is how people's how portfolios like I do a lot of portfolio reviews and when we were in school we were making portfolios and you might have two or three stories and then all the rest were these single images and you had to have a food picture and a sports right, yeah. picture and a news picture and a, right you know and a portrait and more and more, I think those portfolios, now people just show their projects. They just show their stories and the projects they're working on. And it's much stronger when you see, when you can see that kind of work. Yeah, I think that uh, particularly the, the project that you just mentioned, one, you were working within the limitation of just those small, four small rooms. Mm-hmm. And I think that it helps a photographer to develop a more subtle and nuanced eye as opposed to covering a fire or a big political rally. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, not, every moment is not dramatic, but there can be moments that are very telling. Yes, absolutely. And if you can be patient and if you can be observant enough, you can get a sense of what moments have that kind of potential. It's a difficult skill to learn if you're too impatient for the great photograph. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're, that's absolutely right. It's all about that patience and understanding that just being present with who, with the people that you're photographing and the story that you are interested in telling so that the images come to you. It's like they give them to you and mm-hmm. you have to be ready, open and receptive and take that gift and then honor it. And so I think that that is key. Like, and I think in our world where everybody's in a hurry and, uh, you know, the fact that I would spend like an entire, you know, Saturday just hanging out, yeah. you know, and a lot of, you know, and what, what, what did they do? Well, they, they made the bed and they did their hair and they washed the dishes and, you know, they might do some quilting. But, you know, it was all kind of very simple daily life but to me, it was a like a gold mine, you know. It was a it was so rich. From working on that and and other personal projects of that sort, where you have sort of the luxury of time to revisit, what what sort of skill sets or awareness did you did you gain from that that helped you when you had a much more limited time on the subject? 
Well, definitely the patience, but also to start to quickly ascertain what are the main ideas that need to be communicated about a story. So for like the Aunt Bess and Eileen, which I called old friends, it was all, it was about that relationship and how they filled each other's gaps. Like Eileen was like, a little handicapped uh, with her speech and uh, uh, one of her hands, but she could remember everything Mm -hmm. sharp as, you know, she could remember it all where Bess, you know, her memory wasn't the greatest. So, you know, she'd start to tell a story and then Eileen would pop in with the actual facts. And, you know, it was just this give and take they had. It was just such a beautiful relationship. And I think just understanding what the story is as fast as you can. Like if okay. it's, if it's, you have limited amount of time, it's like understanding that this is the story, you know, and this is what I need to be paying attention to. And then gathering those pieces that will make a narrative, whether I have a day or I have, you know, a month, I think having that sense of clarity about what is the story you're trying to tell is important. Do you sometimes see that ph- photographers may have some great photographs, but they're lacking a clear understanding of the story. Yes. When they, when you, when you sit down for a portfolio review, is that something you see often? Yes. I think because often, you know, people walk into a situation or sent on a situation and maybe they are, are on the ground and they're looking for what the story is. They understand that, Oh, this is really visual. You know, this Mm -hmm. is going to, uh, serve up some wonderful photography but then what's that wonderful photography about what are those wonderful images about and and finding the the both right so it's like the story is this and here's the wonderful images that are going to help explain that you know visually sp- speak to people about what the story is and it's an interesting language of photography I, I, look, I, I see it as a language that I know how to speak and you know how to speak. Mm-hmm. And photographers, as they become more adept, know how to speak visually. And I think that is so important. And it takes time to understand like sort of what photographs can do and can't do yeah. and what the text should be doing versus what the phot- photographs should do. And let each medium shine and do what they do best. Like sometimes I have, you know, looking at people's work and there's some photograph and it's a beautiful image, but they're piling on so much on that picture. So this is about climate change and it's showing that it's about this and it's about that. And actually it's not, you know, the, the mm-hmm. text will be or the caption will be, but the picture, it's actually more simplistic in terms of what it can do and what it's actually saying. And having people understand that difference, I think is really important. Like what's the, because emo- photography speaks so emotionally. It's all about your, it's emotions, especially yeah. if you don't have any text with them. And you're just like, I, when I like look at people's work, I don't want to really know anything about it at first. I want to see what does it say to me. Right. Sometimes they get, they're so married to what their intention was mm-hmm. and what they wanted the work to say that they're, mm-hmm. The resistant, or just they're just not in a place to recognize what the work is actually saying, and it's so true. And unless you're able but to, then sort you, of then the, yeah, yeah, 
Then I think the conversation with someone is, so, okay, here's what we want to say. This is what you're wanting to say. So how are we going to get, what, so what are the images that are going to help you say that, mm-hmm. right? That, so then it's, like a, then it's like a conversation around, well, I really wanted to, I want to say this and I want to say this. And then deciding, well, what can photography do? to say this, or is this a case where you need to write something or is this a, about that per, particular thing? But at least it sets you on a path for looking for the kind of pictures, adding the pictures to your story that you might not have yet. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's so much like at the geographic when we're working on a story, that's why we have, you know, the photographer and the photo editor work so closely together. So they're in conversation about what this story needs visually, and uh, and let's let's and if we've done our homework and we do our research, then perhaps we can find examples that are going to help tell more of the story in at a high visual level. Can you give me an example of that, either when you were in the role as the photographer or as the editor? So there's a story I worked on with John Stanmire. It was his first story. The second story that he did at the at at the magazine, and it was a story about malaria, and and I was it was early on in my career there as a photo editor. So I I you know first of all was to so what are we going to photograph about mm-hmm. malaria? You know so it's like a medical it's medical and people are sick and feverish and what are you going to show? So it, the first step is like a lot of research. So I became like super malaria expert. Right. I, I studied stuff. I read things. I went to some talks about it and I f- found that there were like different causes and effects around malaria. And there's man-made where it's urban, urban malaria. There's mer- comes from we we make the perfect place for mosquitoes. There's the kind of malaria that can kill you. There's all these different types of mosquitoes, and which are the ones that are the carriers. What are the solutions from bed nets to artemisia? So I became like an expert. And so working with John, we found the best places that we felt like uh, in the world that told those very specific stories. So we went to Calcutta for urban malaria, and we went to Peru for man-made, which is all about deforestation. So each 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 location had a reason. Mm. So we weren't going to go to Peru and tell everything about malaria. We're just going to tell this one thing. We're going to talk about the deforestation and creating habitat for mosquitoes. In Calcutta, we're going to go just for it's, it's, a, it's a problem of standing water there and flooding. So then we tell that story there. So in each place, you were telling a very particular piece of that story. That, and you knew, and you, you know, with, and it was our research is what um, made that possible. So doing that kind of research, that's really important. Really important. Yeah. What was the first assignment that you yourself produced for the National Geographic as a photographer? And how did it come about? Well, the very first one, which is really going back into the dusty archives, <laughs> is when I was an intern. So oh, I okay. interned there. So I was college photographer of the year, the first uh, female in the history of that contest. And the prize, as it still is today, is an internship at the National Geographic magazine, summer internship. So I was uh, primarily 
you know, as a student, uh, primarily shooting black and white, only just kind of started shooting some color transparency film. Bob Gilka was the director of photography mm-hmm. at the time. I stumbled my way along through that summer, you know, learning how to shoot color transparency film with, you know, with the handheld light meter and, I mean, total dark ages. Then I got an assignment in Africa, in Uganda, to go with a family who was returning after Idi Amin fell. So the woman who was Ugandan, she had been out of the country for seven years, seven, eight years, and she was going back now for the first time with her husband. He was Canadian. They had a baby, and I went with them. And I ended up being over there for like three months with them. And that was my first story with them. And I just, by the skin of my teeth, got a publishable story, I would say. (laughs) So that was my first one. But boy, did I learn a lot. No, no, but what, what, you, you know, you say you pulled it off by the skin of your te- teeth, but you learned a lot. What were some of the more important lessons you learned? Well, that I was not the boss of the story in a mm, way, yeah. right? You know, I, I felt like, you know, I wanted, and I got very emotional and uh, unhappy when I felt like things might have, could have happened at a certain time that would have been much more conducive to better photography than when they actually happened. And being able to just roll with those punches, I was not very flexible at, uh, at okay. first because I felt, I felt so intense about, you know, doing a good job. And so things happened like we, the day we drove into Kampala, we ended up getting there at night. And we were supposed to get there during the day. And this was a huge moment where she's going to see her family and relatives for the first time in eight years. And to me, this was key. And the fact that we got, it was very late when we left and we got held up at the check at the border. And by the time we got there, it was dark and I'm shooting Kodachrome and I was going to have to use a flash (laughs) and I wasn't very good at flash. And I was so upset, you know, that... Mm -hmm. We didn't roll in like at five o'clock in the afternoon when the light was beautiful or something, right? So I learned a lot of patience. I learned about being flexible. I learned a lot of things that I kind of knew, but the, but the, it just had been ramped up for me on that first story so much. I was that the intensity of shooting my first geographic magazine story kind of made me a little crazy. So um, <laughs> I think I, I think I learned a lot about being self-sufficient, being a problem solver, which I really learned that after my internship was over and I went to my first newspaper job in Topeka, Topeka, Kansas with Rich Clarkson. That's when I really learned. That's when I think I really became a professional. That was a couple of years there was, what turned me into the kind of person I think that was a foundation for me for the rest of my life. Yeah. Even today, it's just being that problem solver, not bothering people with my problems, accepting the responsibility that now this is mine and my job. And um, I'm just going to go do it. And I'm going to figure it out. And tell me what the role of the, the editors were in terms of you sort of developing yourself as the kind of human being that could tell these stories and not just a better technician with a camera? Mm. I worked with a number of different photo editors while I was shooting. And it was 
that second pair of eyes, that more objective second pair of eyes that who, you know, they didn't, you know, walk 10 miles for the photo, right? Or, you know, didn't eat for two days or didn't take a bath or, you know, didn't climb the mountain, whatever it is that like made that picture in your mind so important. Mm-hmm. I got this, you know, after all the struggle. And then, you know, you have somebody telling you, well, yeah, the story about getting it is good, but the picture in itself is just okay. Right. And having somebody having that distance while it's painful, you know, that the picture that you, you know, spent four days trying to get might not be good enough. That is a very important lesson to understand how your pictures are communicating with other people who were not standing there, did not walk the 10 miles, you know, did not hear and smell and everything else that uh, the photographer is experiencing and who you just ha- have that person. I think it's really important as a photographer to have other people's eyes on your work and have that People can help you understand what is communicating. So are they feeling what you're feeling or what you hope the pictures make you feel? And and as an editor, it's very important to be that person for the photographer. Yeah. You know, I always felt like when, I, when I'm editing people's work, one of the great joys of being an editor is having that vicarious experience. Uh, looking at the photographer's work and feeling their joy or feeling their pain or feeling their anger or feeling their boredom, like whatever it is that's going through. I think you really, really can feel that, especially at the geographic, when you look at everybody, the whole take, it's not like you're just looking at the hundred photos, you're looking at it all and being able to have that uh, opportunity, I think is where you really learn how the photographer is working, how they're moving their body, what they see, when they see it. You you, you could be going through, you know, 10,000 pictures and you see something and you can see something happening in the background and you think, are they going to see it? Oh, I hope they see it. Do they see it? And yes, they saw it (laughs) and they went and got it, you know, and then it's just like beautiful, you know, And and then you can really have a conversation where you can help them. Over the past year, I've noticed an increased interest in the show. It's not just about download numbers, but it's that I've been getting comments from everywhere. I've received messages from people in Eastern Europe, South America, Africa, and Southeast Asia, all telling me how they recently found the show and are enjoying going through the archive of interviews we've produced. That's that's amazing to me. It's great to know that so many people think that, that episodes that I produced even 14 years ago are still of value. Though I feel the show has gotten better over these many years, it's great that so many people still love that work. However, one of the reasons why it's gotten better is because you provided me the means to do it. Your support gave me the time and resources to make this show what it is today. Without you, I don't think I would be as adept an interviewer as I am today. And that's just because you gave me so many opportunities to talk to people. And you can help me to continue the work by supporting us financially. There are thousands of listeners who listen to each episode, but only a small number, approximately 3%, support the show financially. 
you and many others have made this show possible. If we can increase our regular supporters from just 3% to 5%, we will be able to do so much more. So if you believe in the work that we do, please become a Patreon supporter today and contribute $5 or more a month. It can and will make a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash the candid frame today and join us. Thanks. Now, as much as we would love to live in a world where we're all judged for the quality of our work, uh, unfortunately, there are people who we have to work alongside with who, uh, you know, make judgments based on your sexuality, uh, your race, any myriad of things. And as you said, you were one of the very first women to, were the first woman to win the College Photographer of the Year. But I'm sure that when you started making your way through the magazine and newspaper world, uh, it was still largely dominated by by men. Thankfully, that's changed, but unfortunately, some of the some of the attitudes haven't. And uh, and I'm, I'm curious as to how um, how did you sort of stay sustain yourself during those sort of difficult moments? Because you know, I've I've talked to people, and even now they they struggle with some of those issues. And it it seems it seems that um, having a place in which they can voice that. This is, is, is important. It's better now than it was, but in your time coming up, how did you experience that? I think that because I was often, sometimes I was the only woman on the staff, on the newspaper staff. Uh, in Philadelphia, there were more women. It was actually pretty good for those days in the 80s. Um, there were a few, several women. But I always felt like the best pictures are going to win. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that was my uh, sort of if I could just, you know, in, what I ha had in my head was I wasn't really thinking so much about my gender or, or anybody's gender. I was just thinking if I took a better picture than that guy, then I'm in. Right. And I just had to make better photographs. Now, maybe that was naive, but I think in general that worked for me was just. You know, I'm going to outlast people. I'm going to stay there longer. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to bring more to the table. And that works for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that's, I mean, it, obviously that worked for me. I had a wonderful career uh, shooting and then editing and then was the director of photography. So I think that, I, I think that worked for me. But I see, I think, you know, the past five years, maybe, maybe 10 years, at least five or 10, five to 10 years, there's been a real sea change about um, who is taking the photographs, mm -hmm. who's, who's, who's telling the story, yeah, who, who has the agency to tell the story, who, you know, and, and we're in a process, I think now, of rebalancing a community that has been out of balance for a long, long time, right? Not just gender, but uh, ethnicity and race. So we're all part now part of that rebalancing. And whenever you're rebalancing something that's really out of balance, the shift has to be very intentional. And in some case, and, and you really got to put some weight on the other side of the scale. Right. right. Some serious weight to even get it even, much less, you know, anything else. So uh, 
I think that's something that all of us over the past five years have become woken up to. And yeah, I, I think in some and been and in, and in a way, it's kind of amazing that we've been we're so blind to it for so long, including myself. Right? I think that it's kind of shocking, you know, when I think back that we didn't think about it. People in some ways. Well, you know, in a room that is so uh, homogenous, there's little reason to think that you don't know everything. Uh, there's, I don't know if it's if this if there's a story is apocryphal or not. Uh, I think the Chevy came out with a, a car called the, the the Nova during the the seventies, and they came out with this car and they found that uh, in the Hispanic market they weren't selling as much as they thought they they would. And then, you know, someone came around and said, "Well, in Spanish, Nova means doesn't go." You know, so it's just like had there been someone in the room who at least had an understanding of Spanish, they may have realized that, you know, this this might not be the best name. And I think that, (laughs) you know, as as funny as that story is, I think it's very analogous that what can happen in a lot of editorial rooms, you know, where there isn't an alternative voice to say, hey, maybe there's a different way of looking at it or approaching it that we haven't considered, not because we're being purposeful about it, it's just that we don't have any sort of context in which to reconsider it. So I think Absolutely. that, so as much as, as I think it's great that we have more photographers of, of greater varieties that are out there that are producing interesting work until things start changing uh, at, the, at the top in terms of the hiring end and that mm-hmm. things are very mm-hmm. slow, very slow, too slow to change. Very slow. Too sl- yeah. I th- um, one of the things uh, at the, being at the National Geographic is that, you know, the largest pool with the with the greatest amount of diversity are the f- straight up photojournalists. That's a mm-hmm. really big pool of people and doing the cultural work, uh, doing that sort of cl- sort of classic photojournalistic documentary photography. That's the, the biggest pool with the most diversity. But one of the problems at the Geographic is, is that's only say maybe 30, Five to forty percent of the storytelling, because there's underwater, there's natural history, there's science, mm-hmm. there's archaeology, and there's uh, and those stories are also key topic areas for the geographic. So, you know, that is like a very narrow pool of people, the people who do that kind of work, which is yes. more technical, like camera trapping, lighting on location. And, and this was an area for me that I thought like, wow, could I, we use some diversity? Anybody that's not a white male, please come over here <laughs> and let's learn how to do this. So we started a program uh, with the society side, a grant, ma- a, a program called the second assistant program it started about two years ago. I think. And we got a, some grant money from the society to, to add like a third person to the team that would go out on those type of, uh, those type of stories. Because most of those photographers work with an assistant mm-hmm. and often one that they know pretty well who knows how to do some of the technical work. So we thought, let's, what if we started bringing in people, a more diverse group of people to go on assignment with these photographers who are doing this kind of work and they're kind of the assistant's assistant, right? And they would sort of, because I think photographers, at least for myself, you know, I'm not a, a book learner. 
when it came to photography. Yeah. It was a do it, do it, learning by doing, right? That's how you really learn. So we started this program and I we probably have had maybe 30 people go through now as second assistants. And it was open. It was any of the photographers that we worked with, we would get them somebody. If they would take some, they would decide we give them some options. We have a sign up and a form that the candidates fill out and they could have them for a week or two weeks. It'd be up to the photographer what they wanted to do. And that was something that I felt like really happy about and yeah. really proud of helping work on. But it's slow. It's still slow mm -hmm. because just because they go out on one story or something with a photographer and learn how to set up a camera trap doesn't mean you can hand them the story next. Right. But it's like starts to create that path, that path of people who might go, wow, I love this. I want to learn more about this. I want to do more of this. And, and then you can start to work with them. Yeah, and I think those those programs uh, are really sort of essential to creating those opportunities. Because I was reading some years ago about girls in the sciences, sciences and mathematics, and it really spoke to that the reason why there's so few were studying those in in college. How you can really see the decline in the interest in those fields from elementary to middle school to high school college and that it's not that they they don't have they're not they're not suitable for those fields or they're not it's not that they can't be really amazing in those areas but because they have not been supported throughout those years of education by the time you get mm -hmm. to the point that someone's graduated and had experience that pool becomes very very limited and i think that exists in a variety of different fields not only not only photography and then so instead of saying because i've heard a lot of editors say well you know i just don't see any work coming in from such and such kind of photographer that they feel like it's just they either believe that it's not there or the people are not good enough to be put out there, and I think it's it's a really an important consideration to, to, to recognize that there is there is within the system itself obstacles that make it more difficult for mm -hmm. for certain people to get in the door, and that uh, that it's the responsibility of the institution itself to not just wait for the person to walk in, but to create opportunities where they can discover them. So I'm glad that the, the, the you know the, the geographic was doing making some effort in in that. Yeah. I also think in terms of the geographic, for sure, the sort of the explosion of the digital online publishing, those stories, those assignments are often great places to try new people because the investment is less, the financial investment, mm. sort of the stakes are a little lower, you know, it's there and it, got, you know, and then it's gone. It's not sitting on your coffee table for the next 100 years, right? You know, and or it doesn't. Uh, rise to the level and you can't use it. I mean, that it's risky. There's a lot more risk involved. And for a magazine, a print story, it's just way more expensive. And then a digital story. So there's a lot of uh, photographers that we were able to use digitally for a while before they did their first magazine story, and uh, which is another great path for bringing in new, new people. I, I, for my, myself, I was like, when I was a photo editor and I put down the cameras and started uh, working as a photo editor, I was all about wanting to bring in new people. Because I felt like the photographers that were my peers, 
that uh, while I was shooting, they didn't really need me. You know what I mean? They already ha- they right. had this down. They were already working on National Geographic magazine stories, you know, and I thought, you know, I felt really ex- excited about the chance to bring in the next, help bring in the next generation of photographers. So I, th- I felt like that, that was kind of my niche, you know. I really liked finding new people, brought in a lot of new women photographers, um, and working with them and helping them learn how to negotiate the place and, and shoot uh, those long-term projects. So I loved being a photo editor, and I'm back to now working more as a photo editor. It's the, and also trying to teach people about photo editing, because not everybody is going to get to maybe be a photographer their whole life yeah. as much as they even want to. It's, it's, you know, with the market has shrunk and the economics of um, journalism are challenged. Being a photo editor is a real job and it's a fantastic job. And it's a very, very fulfilling job. I find it when I made that switch between being a photographer and a photo editor, I had no regrets. I have not had any regrets about that. I found myself, as just as fulfilled working with the photographers as an editor as I did taking the pictures myself. Yeah. What led you to decide to do that? Well, I was, um, I guess that was around 2005. I had been teaching workshops, you know, to photographers, shooting workshops, but part of it is you're editing their work as it comes in during this week-long workshop. So I was, and I really enjoyed that part of the workshop. And I was also working uh, with my husband at the time. We had a, he, had a, he had some a design studio and was doing photo research. And they were doing some books. And I was doing photo research and some editing on the books. And I just felt, I really loved it. I loved, um, I felt also less nervous or less, uh, more confident when I was editing other people's work than when I was actually taking my own pictures. <laughs> oh, I know that very well. <laughs> you know, like I was, I, I know, I was like a, such a nervous photographer in terms of like, is it good enough? Am I going to get that picture? You mm-hmm. know, it was like, I was always kind of uh, a bit fear-based in terms of my motivation. Whereas as an editor, I felt a little more decisive, a little more confident in, in my cho- choices. Yeah. And I, I felt like I could really help people. I could see that I was helping people. And it felt really good to uh, help somebody, you know, with that, with that pile of photos and get them organized and get them in, an, or in a sequence and helping them, like, tell their story and brainstorm with them. And, you know, it's like having a kid in a talent show, the photographer. And you're the mom back there on the side, like, kind of mouthing all the words and everything. And then when they succeed, you're just, like, filled up with joy. And I, I really find that was my path. That was a path that I really enjoyed, and I want to share that you know, with people like you can, you can be in our, there's so many ways to be in the photo community. That's one mm-hmm. thing that's so, uh, it's so plastic. It's so our community, there's so many paths you can take. And I think being an editor is a very worthy and fulfilling path. What was one of the more challenging aspects of being, being an editor? Well, I, we touched on it a little bit, what is the idea of when the photographer, almost every single story 
there's some photographs that the photographer just really gets married to Mm -hmm. and they just can't see the forest for the trees. Right. (laughs) And I, so I started doing a, I started doing something because then it's like, it's me against them. Like Mm -hmm. I like this one, you like that one. And that is a stalemate. There's, it's like, it's never, nobody's going to kind of be able to budge sometimes as much as you try to talk them out of it or they try to talk you into it. So I found, I I used to, I like to do something where I bring, I I call it like the readership survey. So I would grab somebody else in the department, somebody whose vision I trusted and who had great taste in photography and bring them in. And I would show them two pictures. I wouldn't tell them very much about it at all and just say, what do you like? What do you like? And then we'd, we'd gather up a bunch of these and that always sort of broke the log jam. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't always win those, you know, and the photographer didn't always win. And it was kind of like, okay, let's see how this picture is talking to somebody else who's less close to it than we are. Because now I'm like really close to it too, this story. I've been spending months on it. So I think that was a challenge until I realized I just need to bring in more voices. We need to get more readers to see what the, what's happening here. What, how is this picture communicating? The other one was... A challenge is always, I think, uh, probably this will never go away, uh, is t- getting people who are the text editors, the text, the writers, and the text people to understand that there is such a thing as a visual narrative. That it, yeah. pictures are telling a story, and it's not necessarily an illustration of everything you write about, right? That, to me, is like key, and I have fought that battle my entire life <laughs> at every publication I've ever been at. And I don't expect it to go away. But I think that that's because they don't speak that language. So they can't kind of see how that works. And trying to help them see that, that we're, no, we're not going to go run around after you and take all the pictures of all the people you talk to. That's oh, not God. what we do. That's not the pictures that are going to really move people to care about this topic. So I think that's, that's a challenge. When you had a photographer who you had sort of vetted to some degree and you gave him a, a, a first story, what kind of advice would you give them? Because I think there's probably a, a, a certain approach that a National Geographic, uh, Ge- National Geographic photographer has to take in order to serve the needs of the magazine as opposed to, say, working at a, at a daily newspaper. So what were some of the things that you suggested pe- to people as they went out to do their first story for the publication? For me, it's really important that they be themselves, that they don't kind of think they understand what it means to be a National Geographic photographer and then try to fit themselves into that because that Mm. almost never works. The reason somebody is being brought in and hired to do it is because of who they are and how they see. And that I never want them to like let go of. Like you're here because we love your work that you have done prior to being here. So don't all of a sudden become somebody else trying to be what you think we are or yeah. what we want. You stay with your, your vision. We want your vision. We love your photography. We want you to just apply it to this topic. And that it was always like, that was always one thing I would always tell them. And the other thing I would, say, I would always say, like to say to people is that photojournalism is two things. It's photography and it's journalism. 
Now, journalism is like, you know, that part of your brain that's going to get the captions and do the research and understand sort of the story on a sort of verbal level. (laughs) The photo part is the artist. This is the, you have got to tap into your inner artist. Because what I want to see is pictures at that intersection of art and journalism. The art of the photograph is just as important in terms of the storytelling as is the journalism part. So if a photograph to me is all journalism, then it's kind of some kind of didactic, explanatory, how to, you know, you know, uh, fry a chicken or how to, you know, uh, you know, uh, build a boat, you know, versus the art of building the boat. The beauty, the art, like, can you find the art as opposed to don't show me every step? You know, I don't want like a how to make a boat. I want to see what building a boat means on a very aesthetic and art, sort of art, artful way, as well as information. So it's finding that intersection to me is, is key. So that's what it was be yourself and then be at the intersection of art and journalism. Those were the two things that were important to me. So when you were looking at somebody's work, you were looking at their their abilities in both those those areas. They didn't necessarily have to be completely proficient, you know, but they had to have some so so some indication that they were capable of of straddling both of those. Yes, and being able to handle like a lot of moving parts, being a good problem solver. Because all these stories, you know, best laid plans, boy. And then you get out there and <laughs> yeah. it rains for two weeks or something. You know, it's like, then what are you going to do? We've just spent a lot of money getting you there, right? So it's kind of being that problem solver, mm-hmm. being able to handle a lot of moving parts. Because these stories are big. We need you to succeed. And we try to give the photographer every type of support we can because their success is our success that's yeah. always for sure for certain tell me about your uh, the visual thinking collective yes I, I don't know if i have my elevator speech about that down yet so <laughs> this okay. may be it's a little podca- rambly because it's, it's new okay. this, in podcasting <laughs> that is completely acceptable <laughs> um so when i was deciding to leave the geographic this past summer I was thinking about what am I going to miss, you know? And one of the things that I knew I was going to miss is the community. Like being every day in a community of people who are dedicated to visual storytelling. And I thought, wow, there's so many things out there for for photographers. There's all these agencies and there's photo festivals and there's portfolio reviews and there's mentorships and there's all of these things for photographers that our community has created, rightly so, fairly so, but there's not so much for somebody like me who wants to stay in the community or be in a community unless I'm at a publication or something. So I decided, well, I'm just going to have to make something. I'm going to make one. So the Visual Thinking Collective was an idea I had to make a community of uh, women, photo editors and creative directors and uh, story to visual uh, project managers so that we could help one another, like strengthen numbers. I felt that there was a lot of women I know who are out there doing it on their own and uh, some quite successfully doing it on their own. But I thought, well, what if we band together? Maybe we can be even more successful and offer each other support 
and also maybe pitch, have a platform from which to pitch ourselves and our talents. So that's how it started. And uh, we got it. It's standing up. I don't know if it's walking or talking quite yet, but <laughs> it is standing a few weeks ago. And now we're figuring out the next steps. We all have uh, ideas and dreams of working on uh, maybe some projects together, probably growing the group. We have six women, and uh, including myself, but probably grow it some. I think that I'm my personally interested in editing and teaching. Some of the others are have you know different sort of skill, little slightly different skill sets, and what they're interested in. So just figure out how all that works is kind of where we are right now. Oh, cool. I look forward to seeing what you guys got come up with in the next coming years, few coming years. Yeah. Yeah, well, I am too. <laughs> well, my last question that I ask each guest, I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I thought about this a lot because I know I've listened to your podcast, so I know you do this, and I was struggling because I have too many people. Um, but I'm going to say um, Evgenia Arbugayeva. She's a young photographer who um, I met about five years ago at a portfolio review in New York. And she was not working at the Geographic. And I was, at, at, while I was, uh, so maybe six years ago, I was. Uh, still a picture editor, and she came to my table and had this amazing two, she had two stories. She's from Siberia, she's from Yakutia, and she had a story about a small town um, in Siberia called Tixi that she grew up in, uh, and then after she left Yakutsk, and then also a story about mammoth tusk hunters. Now, I knew the mammoth tusk hunters were, it was a perfect National Geographic story. And it was shot very sort of straight up uh, photojournalistic style. And then the Tixi work was like magic realism. It was gorgeous. It was just, I loved it so much. So I brought the work back and I said, um, talked to our editor at the time and said, you know, we should do this mammoth test story, but we should send her back because I want the pixie photographer to go do the mammoths, you know, <laughs> and because that was that that intersection that we were talking about. Right. If she could bring the art to it. So she did. She went back. She did a beautiful job. And she's been working at the National Geographic ever since. And she's one of my favorite people and an amazing photographer, artist. You should talk to her. Well, I look forward to looking at her work. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah. And thank you for yeah, your time. Definitely. It was. Uh, I'm glad that you're. We're feeling better, and that uh, yes. we were able to, <laughs> to, to talk without coughing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to be a part of uh, of almost 500. You're cl- closing in on 500. Oh no, we just turned 500 last week. You just. Okay, so. I'm in the, the five past the 500 mark. I'm yeah, really uh-huh. to be part of uh, all those interviews that you have done is an amazing and a huge honor for me, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so so much. Thanks to Sarah for sharing a time and story with us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting saraline.com. And I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the Focus on the Story Photo Festival in the fall and a Memento Photographic Workshop in El Paso, Texas in August. 
And I'll also have my week-long workshop in Tokyo in December. You'll find details on all of these on our websites and for the workshop in El Paso and in DC, we are now accepting students. So check it out and sign up soon. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcast. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. Thanks to Ben PK from the UK for his five-star review. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a wonderful response, and I'm back with a follow-up, where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8, and your purchase is another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previously published ebooks by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on the images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including special events, workshops, and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Ned Bagno, Andy Alexander, Zachary Brannigan, Patty Connolly, Antonio Rosario, James Trimble, Sasha Grigori, and DJ Connor for their recent contributions. I'm so encouraged by your support. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show on whatever app or, or service you're using, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>